And let's open our Bibles together to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we are continuing on, it has just been a delight. I eventually end up saying this about pretty much every book we go through. James is my favorite. It's the best. I love it. it. It has been so beneficial, uh, so challenging. Um, we've said many times, James is James is not uh, polite. He 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 just gets into our business, uh, and and it is challenging to to work through these texts week after week, and to have that mirror held up in front of your face and. To see what it is you really look like. But what a blessing this study has been. If for no one else, for me, uh, it has been a gift. And we are continuing on now in James chapter 2. Picking up where we left off last week. That has us at verse 8. So as you're able, let's stand one more time together. In honor of the word of the Lord. And hear now the words of the Lord. From James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you. We rejoice and glorify you for your good gift of your word to us. This pure and perfect gift of your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to make yourself known to us. Lord, we who are unworthy, we who are undeserving, you have chosen to to reveal yourself. You have chosen to send your son. You have chosen to make a way that we might be reconciled to you, that we might know you. Lord, thank you for your spirits working through your word that has brought us from the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light that has transformed us from death into eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue his good work through your word, through the proclamation of your word in transforming us into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you visit some very old church buildings in England or even here in the United States in New England, buildings that have been preserved throughout many, many generations, you might notice something strange about the pews and the way they're set up. Some of these churches that have have been preserved over the centuries that have the original pews, you would go in and you would notice, and perhaps you've seen this somewhere, some of them have doors on them. Some of the pews have doors on, on the ends of the pew to get into them, and on some of those doors there are even locks. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because somebody owned them. 
They, they were owned by wealthy members of the congregation who had paid a pew rent in order to own that pew. The pew rents paid the majority of the expenses of the church. In exchange for your rent, you got your own private pew. It was yours. Nobody else could sit there. If you weren't going to be there, you could lock the door so no one could get in. You you could hand them down to your descendants in your will. You could even sell them by way of deed. Sometimes you'll still see a nameplate on the doors of these pews naming who that particular family is that owned it and paid for it. Now, as you can imagine, the practice of pew rent, somewhat controversial in its day. How could the church be unified when some were owners who could sit in the best pews and even lock them if they weren't there, and some were visitors who, who, if there was enough room, could sort of stand around the outside or fill in in the back in the corners somewhere. How could they all worship the same God, the God who declares himself to show no partiality when they're segregated even in their worship? This practice wasn't started with the worst of intentions. It wasn't started with bad intentions really at all. It was meant for fundraising, but it really doesn't matter what the intentions were. It was a disastrous thing to do. It's good that the practice is done away with, at least officially, because partiality has no place in the church. Sinful discrimination, prejudice has no place. It is, as we have seen from our brother James, a sin. It is particularly damaging to the body of Christ. So as we began James chapter 2 last week, we saw James begin to address this particular sin and address why. Why it is that partiality is such a grievous sin. And in verse 1, we read this admonition from our brother James that governs all that he says in verses 1 through verse 13, where James says this, Show no partiality as you hold the faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the governing statement over this whole section on partiality. We saw last week this word partiality. It literally means to receive the face. To receive the face. to, To form a bias about someone based on what you see. Based on the external appearance. It's to to sinfully judge someone based on some external factor. Or some opinion you have about them. And then to treat them either better or worse because of it. Both are partiality. In verses 1 through 7, last week we saw four reasons why we must not show partiality. First, it's it's incompatible with faith. Second, it's unrighteous discrimination. Third, it's dishonoring to those whom God has honored. And fourth, it is foolish pandering. Though we stopped last week for the sake of time at verse 7, this line of reasoning continues on into our passage today, verses 8 through 13. And so as we resume our study of this chapter, we continue to learn this morning why partiality is so sinful, why it is so evil. Remember from last week, as, as James confronts this particular sin, of partiality, one that I, I would just say we are so tempted to. We, we are all tempted to this. this is, James is going to especially focus in on the sinful discrimination of the rich versus the poor. 
But believers must not treat the poor with hateful scorn while treating the rich with with fawning adulation. We are tempted to that. That's what was happening in the early church. James saw it going on. James calls it what it is. It's evil. But we need to keep in our minds that all sinful partiality is evil. All of it. It doesn't have to just be going in that direction. The rich versus the poor. It could be based on the color of your skin. And our own history bears out the, the wickedness of partiality. We, we, often, we often think of this sin as, as it relates to ethnicity and in light of, of the oppression and mistreatment uh, by a white population of a black population. But I would say to you one of the most rampant ways we see partiality in our culture today, and particularly in the church, is going the exact opposite direction. If you're white, you're no good, and you, shouldn't, you, you should just be ashamed at all times and hang your head. It's all partiality. It's all a preferring of one over another, and James calls it what it is. It's evil. It's rebellion. It is wickedness. Any and all discrimination, partiality, judgmentalism based on outward appearance, based on social status, based on wealth or perceived wealth, based on any human factor whatsoever is an affront to the image of God as he has created us in his image. And therefore, it's an affront to God himself. That's how serious this is. And that's why James spends so much ink on it. That's why why he says so much about this. It has absolutely no place among the people of God. And so he continues in these verses today with three more reasons why we must not show partiality. And the first is this. We must not show partiality because it is contrary to love. Showing sinful favoritism of any kind is not loving. Love is the highest duty we have towards God. It's the highest duty we have towards man. We must love God. We must love people. Now of the two, of course, love for God is the highest calling. It's it's the greatest calling. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So our love for God must be total, all-encompassing. We are to love God with all we have in all we do, all out, in every way, our love for God must be unrivaled by all other loves. Nothing should even come close. But after our love for God, we are supposed to love people. We are supposed to love people. And so again, God says in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. With that same measure of love and care and concern that we have for ourselves, which let's be honest, is pretty comprehensive. We're thinking about ourselves and the care of ourselves at virtually all moments. Am I hot enough? Am I cool enough? Am I comfortable in the way I'm sitting? Am I enjoying whatever this is that I'm surrounded by? Am I hungry? Am I sleepy? Do I have too much energy? Whatever it is, with that same measure with which we consider and love ourselves, we are commanded in Scripture to love people. And we need to understand that this command is without stipulation. Our duty to love other people is without stipulation. If they're hard to love, we must love them still. If they've wounded us with their words, 
we're still to love them. If they repay our love with hatred, our duty to love remains. We are to love people without stipulation, friend or foe. And no doubt the way we love someone may differ. The way we love people might look different from person to person and setting to setting, but the duty to love remains regardless. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, we must love our enemies. Love our enemies. That means two things. One, a Christian will have enemies. If you don't have any, if nobody's saying anything bad about you, you're not doing it right. You're probably being a coward. You're probably hiding your light under a bushel. But here's the other thing it means. We're to love them. We're to love them. They count us as enemies. We look towards them with love. It doesn't mean we don't recognize that's an enemy. They're opposed to me. They they want to destroy me. They want to destroy us. We recognize that, but we are to to love them. That's the motivation in what we say and what we do. And enemies are not going to repay your love with more love. That's not how that works. They're going to repay your love with hatred. They're going to repay your love with slander. They're going to repay your love with persecution. And so love here is the the overarching command of God. Our love for others must be without stipulation. It's the overarching command. We love. And that's it. There's nothing put on that. No stipulations are put on that. We just love. Jesus affirms this when, when a lawyer who specialized in the Jewish law tried to put him to the test. And the lawyer wanted to test Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus answers him in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments are love. Love for God, love for people. He goes on in verse 40, and these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The summation of the entire Old Testament, the summation of the law, the summation of the prophets is bound up in these two commandments. The sum of God's law is this, love God and love your neighbor without stipulation. That's the sum of every duty laid upon us by God. That, it, 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 it all falls under that category. Every duty, every command that we have in Scripture is really an expression of those two commands. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor without stipulation. To do them is to fulfill everything that God requires of us. And so James says to us here in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James says here the scriptural command to love your neighbor is a fulfillment of the royal law. What's the royal law? It's a very interesting phrase. It's the only place we see it in scripture, the royal Law. Well, what is it? Well, it's just that. It's royal. It's the king's law. 
Royal is given to a king. Royal is belonging to a king. So the royal law is the king's law. He's not referring to a man-made law, but the law of our Lord. And our Lord's law is supreme over everyone. It, it, It binds every one of his subjects. And that is everyone that he has created is bound by the Lord's law, the king's law, the royal law. The royal law is the sum and total of God's revealed will, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's everything he has commanded in the revelation that he has given to us in his word. The word of God in both testaments contains God's royal law. It reveals his will. It tells us what he likes. It tells us what he dislikes. It tells us what he requires of us as as those whom he has created, as those who belong to him. And James says that loving your neighbor fulfills the entirety of this law. (coughs) Excuse me. The entirety of God's law regarding our relationships with other people. Our relationships with, with those whom God has made. If you love them, we're told, then you do all the commandments connected to how you relate to people. If, if you love them. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 22 that we just read moments ago. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where he says, Oh, no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. God's royal law, God's revealed will requires us to love people. And so James says, if you do that, you're doing well. In in other words, you fulfill the law of love, then you are living a life that pleases God. To to pursue love in every single one of your relationships is good. And that's what God wants from you. And that's how you must relate, Christian, to everyone. You're to love them. Everyone. Without exception. Even that one person That one who just drives you nuts. You're supposed to love them. On the other hand, James says, though, in verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality is not loving. It, It springs from a heart that does not have love for neighbor. And since love is the greatest commandment, to fail at love is to fail... Completely. If you do not love, you fail. You, you just fail at anything that matters. If your life is not marked by love, your life is a failure. It doesn't matter what else might be true of you. J- James calls partiality sin because it lacks love. Sin, as you know, means simply to miss the mark. And we can hear that expression 
And somehow we get confused and think that softens the blow of sin. But sin's not merely a mistake. Sin's not merely an error in judgment. Sin is not a miscalculation or some breach of etiquette. It is not mere negligence. (coughs) Excuse me. Sin is to fall short of what God requires of you. Sin is a rebellion against God's good commands. It's a falling short of the glory of God. And if you show partiality, James says you are committing sin, literally working sin. Partiality is not just a sin, it also makes you, James says, a transgressor. James says you're convicted by the law as transgressors. A transgression is an overstepping of the boundary. So so to show partiality is to go beyond what, what God has permitted. So we're convicted here on two counts if we show partiality. It is a sin, it is a falling short of the law of God, and it is a transgression. It is going too far and crossing the line of the law of God. And one of the areas we often show partiality One of the areas we often fail to love is in our selection of friends. If we're going to examine our own lives, we see that this is true. Now, we all gravitate more to some people than other people, right? We do. There's certain people we enjoy being around. And there's certain people we would sort of prefer not to be around quite as much. There are certain people who it's very easy for us to connect with, and there are certain people who are hard. True? Of course it's true. It's true for all of us. Naturally, you're going to form close relationships with some people more than you are with other people. And in and of itself, that's not sinful. That's just how life works. To spend more time with one person than another person, even to enjoy spending more time with one person than another person, is not automatically sinful. Again, that's just how life works. Jesus chose 12 disciples. He invested the majority of his time in these 12 men. He did not choose everyone he knew and then disperse his time out evenly. That is not how it worked. He didn't look at all of his followers and then just portion out time to make sure that no one felt left out. He invested in these 12 men. And even among those 12, there were three in particular that he gave himself to in a way he did not the others. Well, surely we agree that Jesus was not sinning in doing that. Surely we must agree that that he had good reasons for doing it. and, and, And in doing it, he was right. And it was good that he did so. He committed no sin by favoring some more than others. However, sometimes our distinctions between who we enjoy being with and who we don't, who we count as easy to get along with and who we don't, who we prefer to befriend and who we don't is nothing more than a mask to try to hide our sinful partiality. Brothers and sisters, we ought to test ourselves. We ought to examine ourselves and see if that's true of our hearts. <coughs> it's not necessarily a sin to select certain people to be your closest friends. But it is a sin to despise a person that you're called to love. 
It's a sin to shun a person for selfish reasons. It's, it's a sin to mark a, mock a person who doesn't measure up to your standards. There's something of a crisis of true biblical friendship among believers. And the root of the crisis is a lack of love. It's partiality. It's exactly what James is, is talking about here. Too often we seek out friendships for sinful, selfish reasons. We, we discriminate against those who don't make us look good or feel good or benefit us in some way. And that's not seeking friendships out of love. That is seeking friendships out of sinful selfishness and favoritism. <clears throat> so, some people might not offer you that much. Let's be honest. It, they, they might not advance you socially. They might not be the most fun person you've ever been around. They might not even offer you a whole lot of feedback on the love that you show them. But, but if the ones you love and form friendships with are only those who satisfy your wants and desires, then you have not loved. <coughs> Sorry, it's one of those days with the coughing. What, what have you done? If the only person you invest yourself in are those who, who you're receiving something back from, what you have engaged in is a self-centered transaction. Where you are the main character in all of life and everyone exists to please you and to serve you and to, to feed into whatever you need. I befriended this person for what I could gain. That is called partiality. Now, now to be clear, again, you can't be close friends with everyone. It's not possible. It's not possible. We all have a certain amount of hours and energy even in a small church like this, we can't all be best friends. We're a tiny little church, but you can't be best friends with everyone. It's not possible. <clears throat> but you are called to love your neighbor. That means your poor neighbor. That means your unattractive neighbor. That means your socially awkward neighbor, your less educated neighbor, the neighbor that doesn't look like you, the neighbor that doesn't like what you like. The neighbor that perhaps doesn't hold to your certain convictions or holds different ones than you hold. Not biblical convictions, but, but you know, those secondary issues. You're to love them. We know that Jesus spent most of his time with 12 men, and it was right that he did. But never forget, Jesus was known far and wide as a friend of what? Friend of sinners. He showed no partiality. He, he loved people. He loved the people that no one else would love. He befriended people that no one else would befriend. Brothers and sisters, that you can call Christ your friend means that he has befriended someone who could never pay him back, who has nothing to offer him in that, in that, in that transaction. That, that's who Jesus is impartial when it comes to those he loves. And we, friends, are called to be the same way. Jesus makes this point dramatically when he is tested by another lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, 
What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I required to love under the law? If the law requires me to love my neighbor, well, who is it? Who do I have to to love? And in response to that question, Jesus tells him a parable. Parable, we're very familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He goes on in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Well, at this point, we got a priest and we got a Levite. They didn't care for this man, a Samaritan. Speaking to this expert in the Jewish law, this young lawyer, there's nobody he hates more than this guy. This is ethnic partiality at its finest. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. After telling this parable, Jesus turns the tables on the lawyer and he puts him to the test. <coughs> this lawyer who'd been, been seeking to test Jesus, Jesus now asks him a question to test him. And he says in verse 36, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Why why did Jesus respond like this to this question? Who's my neighbor? That seems like a great question. The law commands me to love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? He told this story because the lawyer had it all wrong. The, The critical question is not who is my neighbor? What are the limits to how I am supposed to love and who I am supposed to love? The question is this, whose neighbor am I? This lawyer had it backwards. Whose neighbor am I? Not who is my neighbor, whose neighbor am I? The the lawyer wants to justify his partiality. In his mind, there's not even a, a, a millisecond of thought that a Samaritan might be. Well, we know not that. I just want to know which of the Jews I have to love and who I don't have to love. He wants to justify his partiality by having Jesus distinguish for him who he has to love under the law and who he doesn't. What Jesus does instead is show him that God's law of love requires us to love everyone without partiality. And so we must not be partial because it's contrary to love. Second, we must not show partiality because it's offensive to God. 
as we've seen, when we commit partiality, we're committing sin. We're convicted by the law of transgressors. That, that's a serious crime. To be a transgressor of the law. Again, we're brought up on these two charges, sin and transgression. It's, it's a serious charge because it means that we're criminals. We've been convicted by God's law. We are all criminals before God because we've violated his law. <coughs> and in particular, we're all guilty of violating this law. A partiality in some way. Showing favoritism. We're criminals before God, every one of us. But we're not just criminals because we've broken one law. We are criminals because we are judged by God to have broken all of his royal law. All of it. Look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's why it's such a huge deal. James is telling us, <coughs> as God looks, you're guilty of breaking every single law. Every single one he's got. If a person obeyed all of God's law except one, he is still accountable for all of it. We say this often on a Sunday morning as we come to the Lord's table and we, we're called upon to examine ourselves. It is not safe. It is not right to, to hold out in one area and think that we're okay. What James tells us here is to hold out in the one area, to transgress the law in one area is to be guilty of the whole thing, every single law. Why is that the case? It doesn't seem fair at all. If I get pulled over for speeding today, after the service, I have, yes, broken the law. I have been speeding. I do not think they will throw me in prison as an armed robber. I'm not guilty of armed robbery. All I did was drive too fast. Why is this any different? Why is this different? James gives us two reasons why it's different. The first is this. The law of God is one. The law of God is one. Though there are individual commands in God's royal law, they are all part of a whole. They're part of one whole, what one commentator calls a seamless fabric of authority. So an affront against one is an affront against all of them. The law of God is an indivisible unit. John MacArthur likens it to a window. You can't go to one of the windows with a hammer and just knock one little hole out of it. If you take that window to the hammer, what's going to happen to the whole window? The whole window is going to shatter. The whole thing's coming down. Likewise, to violate one command is to violate the law's unity, and therefore it makes you guilty of all of it. So James says to fail in, literally to stumble over. One point. To fail in one point, he says, means you have failed the standard of the law. And what is the standard of the law? Perfection. Perfection. So what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The law demands perfection. And that is a problem. It's a problem because we're not perfect. 
None of us is perfect. Only the Lord Jesus Christ was and is perfect. <coughs> Once you've broken even one law, you, you, you can no longer meet the obligation to obey the law perfectly. And therefore, you are culpable of all of it. You have already fallen short of the standard. And so the law is one. But there's another more important reason why disobeying one point of the law makes you guilty of all of it. And that is this. The law is one because the lawgiver is one. Look at verse 11. For he who said. James is turning our attention not just to the law, but to the one who gives the law. The one whose royal law it is to this king. Do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice how James begins this. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. The, The law is not just some written code to be obeyed. It is the words of the lawgiver. This is the royal law. This is the king's law. This is, this is the law of the sovereign Lord. And his law expresses his will. His, his commandments express his will. His commandments aren't arbitrary. They don't just come out of nowhere. It's not just a, a collection of random tidbits or advice for life. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the law of God is. His commandments are all a reflection of his character. Don't murder. Why? Because that's who God is. God values life. Do not commit adultery. Why? Because that's who God is. God is faithful. God values marriage. God's commands are not arbitrary. They reflect his values, his priorities, his love, his hate, his will, his nature. And to so to violate even one commandment is to defy God personally. It's an affront against him, not just some code. <coughs> I apologize that you have to all watch me struggle like this this morning. <laughs> If you drive down a road and you disobey the speed limit, you've disobeyed a code, but you didn't disobey a specific person. Except maybe your spouse sitting in the front seat telling you to slow down and then saying, I told you so when those lights start flashing. But if you disobey God's law, it's not some code. It's not some code that you have disobeyed. You have disobeyed him. Him. You've disobeyed the lawgiver. The law expresses his values, his priorities. It's a a rebellion against who God is. So James gives us this example. You're standing in a courtroom (coughs) accused of murder and guilty of murder. And you say, yeah, judge, I killed him. But I never cheated on my wife. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You you, you haven't honored God by obeying him partially, James says. So you didn't commit adultery. Great. But you did murder. Even though you said yes to God in regard to one law, you said no to him over here. 
You said no to God. You rebelled against God. You shook your fist in God's face. It doesn't matter how many other places you said yes if you do that even once. So James wants us to see that sinful partiality is not just an affront to the law. It's an affront to God himself. Because as we saw last week, God is impartial. It's interesting to think why James uses these two examples, adultery and murder, to make a point about partiality. In one sense, he could have chosen any of God's commands and it would have been true. But why did he choose these specific ones? Well, he doesn't tell us why he chose these two specific ones. But against humanity, these are two of the most grievous sins we can imagine that can be committed against another person. Adultery and murder are among the worst sins that one human can commit against another human. And perhaps that's why James chose them. These two sins are most destructive, destructive to life, destructive to marriage. We tend to think that partiality is not that bad. It's simply not that big a deal. We might be tempted to think it's a trivial sin in the grand scheme of things. James will not let us get away with minimizing this sin in that way. So he compares it with adultery and murder. He puts it right up there. Sinful discrimination is evil. Therefore, we must not commit the sin of partiality because it is an offense to God. Third, then, we're closing in on the end here. We must not show partiality because it's deserving of judgment. Given how bad sin is, it demands that we respond. (coughs) Look then at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Partiality is revealed in the ways we speak and act. It, it starts in the heart, but it's revealed in the ways we speak and act. And therefore, we ought to speak and act, James says, like people who know that we'll be judged by God for what we say and what we do. N- none of us, of course, have obeyed God perfectly. We've all discriminated against others. We've shown favoritism to those we thought could benefit us. If we had to face judgment according to God's law alone, we would be condemned. But if we've trusted in Christ, he has become our condemnation. His death on the cross made atonement for our sins and we are forgiven. We've been clothed with his righteousness and accordingly. And this is the best news. God will judge us on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. God will declare us not guilty On the day of judgment. Therefore, we are to live as people who have been redeemed by the gospel. If Christ has saved you, you ought to speak and act like someone who now lives under what James calls the law of liberty. God's law is now written on your heart. You now have a will to do his will. You now serve him out of love and not fear. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. You have been freed from the power of sin to live in holiness by the Spirit. If God has liberated you in that way, you ought to live like it, James says. If God has liberated you, he's done so so that you will love him and love people. Therefore, believer, you must not speak words of prejudice or act with sinful discrimination because 
It is contrary to the gospel. It is contrary to the law of God. It's now written on your heart. But for those who have not come to saving faith, James gives a word of warning in verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Verse 13, excuse me. Mercy. Mercy is a showing of compassion to those in misery. That's what mercy is. Compassion related to misery. It's to give help to the needy and the afflicted. To those who are merciful, Jesus has promised in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But not all are merciful. The one who is not merciful demonstrates that they have not been saved by Christ. Despite whatever outward profession of faith they may make, no matter how good they may sound, their faith is dead. Their faith is dead and they deserve judgment. Lack of mercy often springs from a heart full of discrimination. The one who is, who is prejudiced in their heart will be merciless with their mouth and with their hands. You, you don't have to look very hard, as I said earlier, to see the devastating consequences of that. We've all seen it. Our own history bears it out. The one who is prejudiced in their heart will be merciless with their mouth and with their hands. Lack of mercy and partiality Walk hand in hand. They, they arise together. And Jesus warns those who are without mercy that on the day of judgment, they will be shown no mercy from God. The standard that they have used will be used against them. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, Jesus says, With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When no mercy has been showed, no mercy can be expected, only judgment. It's a striking word, but James doesn't leave there. He, he ends verse 13 with these beautiful words of hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's written like a proverb. I think that that's how James intends it. It's a truism about life. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He wants us to know if you've lived a life that is merciful to others, it is evidence that your profession of faith is real. It's not that showing mercy saves you. It doesn't save you. No works can save you. Only faith in Christ can save. But a true profession of faith will be demonstrated by words and works of mercy that match that profession. Those who have been genuinely saved by God will strive for mercy they will strive for impartiality. And consequently, if that marks your life, you can be assured that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, he will show you mercy. His mercy will overcome judgment. His mercy will triumph over judgment and you will be saved. <coughs> and so seven reasons. Seven reasons James has given us, four last week, three this week, why we must show no partiality. Partiality is incompatible with faith. It is unrighteous discrimination. 
It's dishonoring to those whom God has honored. It's foolish pandering. It's contrary to love. It is offensive to God and it is deserving of judgments. Based on these reasons that James gives us, would you conclude that being impartial is important to God? That God cares how we treat people, how we speak of people, how we think of people. It's a lot of reasons and they're heavy reasons. Above all, the reason that God is impartial and how he governs his creation, how he offers salvation to man, how he judges sinners, God is impartial in that. He's no respecter of persons. And that is the primary reason why we too ought to be impartial. Impartiality is one of his attributes and we must be like him. Therefore, we must strive to be impartial. And let's pray to that end. That the Lord would continue his good work of transforming us into the likeness of Christ. That we would love God with all that we are. And that we would love our neighbor without stipulation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise of your word that for all who are in Christ, your mercy has triumphed over judgment. Thank you for the the incarnation of Christ, the coming in flesh for us. We thank you, Lord, for his, his sinless life of obedience in our place. For his bearing of our condemnation and our guilt, our condemnation and guilt for this very sin that our brother James warns us and instructs us about. We thank you for the finished work of the cross, for that glorious declaration. It is finished. Thank you, Lord, for the the resurrection, for Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, our our surety of hope. We thank you, Lord, for, for the promise of our own resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that we've been in, in, in the risen Christ. We have been made to live ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that this same Jesus who intercedes on our behalf will surely return for us. We glory in you and in your saving grace. We do pray, Lord, that you would make us increasingly faithful. Cause, cause great love for you. This kind of love that we read about in your word today. That we would love you with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. With all that we are. With no reservations. And Lord, that you would cause us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, to love all people. Forgive us for the way that we sinfully judge Forgive us for the selfishness that so often marks our lives. Help us, Lord, to put that sin to death, that wickedness to death, and to strive for holiness without which no man will see God. Pray that you make us increasingly faithful, increasingly fruitful for your kingdom's sake, that our lives in this church would be a testimony to the greatness of our God, to the power of his gospel, and to the glory of his grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.